Thank you for listening to the Voices of UMass Chan, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of UMass Chan Medical School. Welcome to the Voices of UMass Chan. I'm Jennifer Berryman, Vice Chancellor for Communications in the Office of Communications. Today, a concern that experts around the world have been paying close attention to, specifically the alarming rise in the number of young people struggling with eating disorders that seems to have been exacerbated by the pandemic. Our guest, Dr. Sydney Hartman Munich, is an assistant professor of pediatrics at UMass Chan Medical School. Dr. Hartman Munich, welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thanks for making time to talk with us. So you work in adolescent medicine and are the first author of a recently published study in the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics. Can you tell us about that study that you led and what you found? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I worked with a collaborative called the National Eating Disorder Quality Improvement Collaborative. And this was stopped while I was still a fellow at Boston Children's Hospital in adolescent medicine. And so um, worked with senior authors, Tracy Richmond and Sarah Foreman. And, you know, together with my co-fellows, we started seeing just an absolute rise in the number of eating disorder patients, both outpatient and inpatient, kind of after the onset of the pandemic. And um, my co-fellow at the time, Jessica Lynn, who's now in Ohio, we were sort of discussing it one day and thought to ourselves, like, this is something we should study because anecdotally we're seeing such high numbers of patients, but it's not something that we can necessarily prove. And we're not sure if this is true elsewhere. Um, and so in getting together with different sites on our kind of monthly meetings, we started discussing, maybe this is something we should look at more formally. Can you tell us about the study you led and what you found? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as we were getting together with our National Eating Disorder Quality Improvement Collaborative, um, it's multiple sites throughout the country, all of whom see eating disorders, we were sort of discussing the increases in patients that we were seeing anecdotally and decided to take a look kind of more formally at whether we were really seeing these increases in numbers that we felt we were seeing. And it wasn't just one site. This was a nationwide sort of analysis. Correct. Yeah, we had over a dozen sites in our study, um, most of which were hospital-based eating disorder program sites. Um, we also had one site that was a non-hospital-based, more private eating disorder program as well. Okay. And so what did you find? Are there statistics or numbers you can share from pre-pandemic and then during the pandemic? Yeah, you know, um, what we mostly looked at was kind of trends over time. And so what we came to find was that for, um, in particular, inpatient eating disorder admissions, so this is admissions of patients that need particular help and are, are acutely ill from their eating disorders, that over time pre-pandemic, um, numbers were kind of steady. Um, we weren't seeing any major increases or decreases in numbers. And then very quickly after onset of the pandemic um, in April of 2020, we started seeing massive increases and, and these were statistically significant. Interestingly, for outpatient data um, in looking at our outpatient evaluation, so this is seeing new patients in clinic that are sort of well enough to be seen on an outpatient basis. Um, we saw that for some sites, there were some slight increases pre-pandemic, but nothing that was super duper big. Immediately after onset of the pandemic, we saw a dramatic decrease in the number of new evaluations, which sort of makes sense when you think about the shutdowns and kind of lack of ability to see patients. But then over time, um, very steadily started seeing increases, especially 
especially in the first year of that pandemic. Right. That's really, of course, that makes sense. Early in the pandemic, the health system was consumed with taking care of people with COVID. But I don't want to let this thought that you mentioned get away. And that's the fact that you found that more adolescents and young adults were being admitted to the hospital with higher mm-hmm. acuity. So does that tell you that the cases that you and other physicians were seeing were more severe than usual? It certainly raises the question. I think one of the tough things about doing a a study with summary data is we weren't able, unfortunately, to look at severity. We weren't able to look at individual vital signs or, you know, needs for feeding tube replacement or lengths of stay in particular. Um, And so it certainly raises that question, but I think that's something that we, is definitely a future direction for research. What about your findings uh, came as a surprise? You know, I think one of the things that was interesting was especially looking at the second year after the pandemic, we started to see a decline in the numbers of eating disorder patients. I have to say it didn't feel that way as a clinician. It definitely felt like we were seeing numbers that were just as high. I will say though, even though there were some decreases in the numbers that we were seeing um, based on the data in the study, you know, numbers were nowhere near pre-pandemic baselines. And so I think that that continued high numbers was definitely something we were feeling. And I think another thing to think about too, is that eating disorders are not something that people recover from and are all set within a month or two. And so not only were we seeing these new patients, but we were also continuing to see a lot of the patients that had been new from that first year as well. Sure. Sure. So was there, um, to a certain degree, do you think there was some pent up demand that when access to clinicians opened up a little bit? Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think that was one of the toughest things about early on in the pandemic was, you know, especially in our clinic where, where I was at Boston Children's, you know, we tried as quickly as we could to ramp up virtual visits, to do nurse visits for weight checks in the safest way possible. But, you know, you have to go based on your hospital's guidelines and your state's guidelines. And so it just took time and everybody was figuring out how to even do virtual visits. And so um, it was definitely a learning curve for everybody. Sure. But I also think it's important to note, my my understanding is that your study that was recently published in JAMA Pediatrics was not the only study to show an increase in disordered eating associated with like the 2020 to 2022 time period. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, there have been a number of different studies sort of looking at this. Um, Some of them that have been really interesting have kind of looked at why folks have had increases in disordered eating behaviors. And, you know, a lot of the studies uh, that have done more qualitative work in looking at this have cited things like, you know, increased time spent in potentially triggering environments. So kids who were thriving in college, having to come home and, and suddenly be in environments that are not super conducive to to recovery. Um, I think we all had a period of time where we were really worried about well, how do I get my groceries in a safe way? A lot of people who may have been able to kind of access food easily were started to worry about where, where is my food coming from next? And we also had folks who were, their treatment was really interrupted. So people who already had diagnoses, unable to, whether it's see their therapist in person or go to their treatment facility, along with everybody on social media because everybody was home, which I think is a big contributor as well. Sure. That's exactly what I wanted to ask you about next, because I mean, it's no secret. We're in the middle of a a mental health crisis right Mm -hmm. now that I think was largely sort of a spotlight was shined on it in some ways because of the pandemic. So how do you think this rise in eating disorders sort of fits in or might be connected to the broader mental health crisis? Like, was there something specific that you found 
that was specifically challenging for people who might be susceptible to an eating disorder about the trauma of a pandemic? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, this is not something obviously that we studied specifically in our study, but I think when you think broadly about contributors to eating disorders, you know, trauma is certainly something that we see as connected to the development of disordered eating behaviors or eating disorders, um, especially depending on sort of an individual's psychological predisposition, um, as well as their coping strategies. And you know, we experienced this really collective, very scary trauma, and it's still ongoing um, with the pandemic. And so I think that that's certainly just from sort of like a basics of thinking about the psychology of things would make sense as a contributor. Right. right. While you focus on adolescents and young adults, uh, I've heard you say that that eating disorders don't discriminate. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Yeah. You know, um, I think one of the really difficult things, and this is a particular area of interest of mine um, in terms of healthcare disparities in eating disorder screening and treatment, I think when when you first think of an eating disorder, many people think of sort of what we call the swag stereotype. So skinny, white, affluent girl. Um, I think that's what we all picture in our mind. But we know from many, many years of research that that's just not the, tr- the truth. Um, of course, people who are a fitting of that stereotype do develop eating disorders, but we know that eating disorders can develop in folks of any race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender identity. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that people who have food insecurity can develop eating disorders, any socioeconomic status. And so it's something that not only do we need to be aware of in all of our patients and kind of have red flags about um, if certain things in the history or, or physical exam come up, but it's something that needs to be addressed on sort of a more broad, from a more broad standpoint in terms of um, access to treatment as well. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back to the voices of UMass Chan. You're listening to the Voices of UMass Chan podcast featuring the people, ideas, and advances of UMass Chan Medical School. So I'm wondering for those who are listening and wondering about either their own eating or the eating habits that they're seeing in people that they love, what, what is, what is your definition? What are the warning signs that you would tell people to look for that might be a signal that somebody is having a problem with an eating disorder? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, I think it shows up differently for each individual person, but certainly I think when you're thinking about family members or loved ones, you know, one of the most common sort of things that we see is definitely kind of the initiation of, of a lot of isolation, especially when it comes to eating and eating behaviors. Um, so kids will start to sort of say, I'm not hungry, or I'm going to go up to my room during meal time. Skipping meals is definitely something that's concerning starting to, you know, sort of, uh, of course, any individual comments made about one's own appearance or body image. Dieting is a big concern. I think it's something that's really common, unfortunately. Diet culture is really well ingrained into our society in the United States. And so it can feel really commonplace. But if you have a teenager who's talking about going on different fad diets or talking about losing weight, to me, that's immediately a red flag, even if they haven't lost weight already, because it can spiral so quickly. And as a parent, would you have a conversation with your child? Would you immediately go to the pediatrician? Yeah. You know, I think it's a great idea for parents to be able to talk with their kids. One really difficult thing is because diet culture is so ingrained sort of in all of us, 
it can feel really difficult for a parent to be able to have that conversation with their kid, especially if they're struggling with their own sort of body image concerns or concerns around eating. And so, you know, if a parent feels comfortable talking to their kid about the importance of getting enough nutrition, that's wonderful. But I think this is one of the things that pediatricians do really well is, is help with kids overall health. And we're always happy to, to be here as adolescent medicine providers as well to help kind of reinforce that. Yeah, I can imagine it'd be challenging to know exactly how to approach that conversation without being judgmental. Um, So I want to ask you about your background. I'm proud to say that you're a 2015 (laughs) graduate of this medical school. So uh, where did your path take you uh, after graduation? Where'd you match? And what drew you to pediatrics? Yeah, so um, I matched at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And so I did my residency there in pediatrics. And then I stayed on for a chief year because I loved it so much. After that, I was lucky enough to match at Boston Children's Hospital for my adolescent medicine fellowship. And so I spent the last three years there. And now I'm here at, at back at UMass. So it feels kind of like coming home, which is really nice. Terrific. And and so pediatrics, eating disorders, what sparked your interest in this in particular? Yeah. I mean, I always knew that I wanted to work with kids. That's something that I've loved to do. Even since I was in high school, I used to work at a daycare. When I was in medical school, actually, I took a couple really interesting electives, one in, one in particular that was about um, teenage pregnancy with Annie Powell, who was one of my mentors. And it was not necessarily the content of the elective, although that was very interesting, but the knowledge that adolescent medicine existed, I think was a really cool thing to learn about. I had no idea that it was a thing at all. And as time went on through residency, I realized just how much I love working with teens. I think the opportunity for advocacy is really apparent in pediatrics, but even more so in adolescent medicine. Um, A lot of people don't like working with teenagers, unfortunately, because they can be difficult, but I find them to be really fun and engaging and interested about the world. And oftentimes they need someone just as much as the little kids do. So that's what really drew me to to adolescent medicine in in particular. That is so awesome. So as a healthcare provider, uh, or as a parent, you, you know, mentioned some of the things that would that should spark our attention or get our attention if we're seeing them in our children or teenagers. In terms of getting a diagnosis, that would be something that would be coordinated and done in partnership with the pediatrician. Is that right? Yeah, that is usually what happens. Um, There are a lot of different uh, resources out there for parents, different websites um, that can sort of, they have different questionnaires of, should I be concerned about an eating disorder? But generally speaking, it's, it's the most helpful to kind of go initially, usually it's to the pediatrician. And for better or for worse, I think because we've seen such high numbers of eating disorder patients during the pandemic, pediatricians have gotten so excellent at being able uh-huh. to kind of identify the red flags, know when to refer and really do a lot of the, the co-management of these patients. Um, so major shout out to the pediatricians out there. Yeah. What is there, is there anything you can think of that just a regular person, whether we're just a friend, uh, a neighbor, a teacher, a relative, what can we do to sort of encourage healthy eating or help? Like what, if we want to be helpful, <laughs> what do we do? Yeah, I think it's really tough. You know, I think one of the biggest things that is a pervasive issue, both in sort of our society, as well as in medicine is there's just so much anti-fat bias, um, as well as weight-based discrimination. And, you know, I think that that's so ingrained in so many people's um, sort of core beliefs that it can be really difficult to remove one's own sort of fears and worries with well-intentioned and well-meaning advice that may not actually be helpful. And so I think, you know, one of the biggest things that I always remind my patients and their families of is 
weight and health are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about healthy eating, what are we actually thinking about? Right. Is it that I think healthy eating is just eating a salad. Well, we know that all sorts of foods are important for, for people's health. And so I think encouraging, generally speaking, our own kids or family members to eat a variety of different foods. If they have movement that they enjoy doing on a regular basis, that's great too. But really, you know, sort of letting kids be kids and and focusing less on this is what needs to happen. You need to lose weight and more on, well, what's the bigger picture here? Um, and how can I be supportive of my kid in general? Right. And thinking about food as fuel. Totally. So while of course you're on the faculty as an assistant professor of pediatrics at UMass Chan Medical School, your adolescent medicine clinic is in UMass Memorial Health. And um, you're now working on building a comprehensive eating disorders program that's outpatient. So what can you tell us about that? Yeah, that's the goal. Um, so right now we're sort of still in in early stages. I am seeing new eating disorder patients, but um, right now just more from a sort of a medical standpoint with that capacity. And so the hope is to just have a little bit more of a comprehensive way of evaluating patients and providing them um, at the very least with sort of whether it's uh, like bridge therapy until they're able to establish with a therapist or go to an eating disorder program, expanded nutrition access, and just really the ability to help patients who have been struggling. I think, you know, there are a lot of resources further East, but central mass has sort of been a little bit of a desert when it comes to caring for these patients. And we have such a large population of patients that uses mass health. I think it's really important to have equal access for patients with uh, potentially less means than, than patients who might live in the suburbs. Yeah. Then that time, that age frame is such a pivotal point in somebody's life. So I could imagine you would really have quite a good effect if you could get in and help them as the symptoms start to emerge. Is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about this? No, I think, you know, um, eating disorders, like I said, they don't discriminate they're really pervasive. There are different prevalence numbers depending on where you look, but up to 10% of people within the population will struggle with an eating disorder in their lifetime. And that doesn't even include people who have disordered eating behaviors. So may not meet criteria for a full eating disorder or, or have received a diagnosis. And so this is something that's so pervasive and so important. And I think it's often thought of as sort of a dismissed mental health concern, but this is really, it's real. And it's something that we've seen really increasing over time and and something that deserves our attention. Dr. Sydney Hartman Munich, thank you so much for making time to talk with us. Thank you so much for having me. And listeners, if you or someone you love is struggling with disordered eating, please see the show notes of this podcast for a list of resources. Thank you for listening. I'm Jennifer Berryman. We'll see you next time. Follow us at UMass Chan on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. On YouTube, find us at UMass Chan Medical School.